0: welcome to the edge of sports podcast i'm dave Zirin. today we are speaking to bob Glauber, who along with nfl pro bowler now espn broadcaster Keyshawn johnson has written a rather remarkable book called the forgotten first kenny washington woody strode marilyn motley bill willis and the breaking of the nfl color barrier I'm so excited about this interview because the book is fascinating. Bob is a great talker. He's been covering the NFL since 1985. Maybe I'll ask him a little bit about that. It's gonna be terrific. I also have some choice words about the predation and power in the National Women's Soccer League. And wrapped up in that is my Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down awards. Just stand up to the women of the NWSL, Just Sit Your Ass Down the powers that be in that all-important league. Uh, also, I got Jake's Takes, Jacob Ziron, find out who he was putting the smart money on for this past week's five of the NFL season and more. But first, let's start with Bob Glauber. So Bob, people are familiar with Keyshawn Johnson. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Well, I am an old football writer, um, having started in 1985. That was my first year covering football, and it was was a great time to cover in New York. And I covered the Giants for uh, Gannett Westchester newspapers um, back then. And so it's, you know, LP is there. Bill Parcells is there. He's just coming into his own. Phil Sims, you know, the rules of engagement for writers are very loose. So we got to know the players very well. They got to know us. So it was, you know, as far as I'm concerned, a great time to start writing, and I just I've been at it ever since. I've been at Newsday since 1989, and um, you know, it, it just kind of never gets never gets boring, never gets stale. There's always a, there's always a new and interesting story in football, and um, so then you know, kind of fast forward a lot of years, uh, I was able to cover uh, four Super Bowl championships uh, that the Giants had another Super Bowl run. And you know covered the league. I've you know seen all Super Bowls since then, and um, it, it, it's been cool. Um, and then I, I did write a book um, called "Guts and Genius" about Parcells, Gib- Joe Gibbs, and Bill Walsh and their rivalry in, in the '80s, which really kind of dominated football. And then so we get to a couple of years ago, I'm um, literally standing in the Giants' locker room waiting for. Uh, probably to talk to Odell Beckham on his weekly appearance. And I, I'm, I'm just looking around the room and thinking about, you know, I've been covering it for a long time and this, it's a very diverse uh, locker room. And I'm thinking, you know, it, it didn't used to be this diverse um, when I first started. And I'm thinking, you know, it probably wasn't very diverse before that. In fact, um, and then I, I think, well, who, who's the first black player in, in modern pro football? Um, And I, and I didn't know the answer to it. So I literally Googled on my phone, first black player football NFL and up comes Kenny Washington. And um, you know, this is the modern NFL now 1946. There have been some black players before that. And I'm like, okay, I've been covering a sports since 1985. I don't know the answer to this, and I'm going to guess that a lot of people don't know the answer to that. And um, that that is, in fact, the case. Um, you ask anyone who broke the color barrier in baseball, and then Jackie Robinson comes up immediately, ask about football, and you get blank stares. And, and you know, it's, it's no one's fault, but it just did seem to be a gap in, in history. And you know, I've known Keyshawn for a long time, and, and we spoke about it about a year and a half ago. And he was, you know, within like two minutes of the start of our conversation, he was very engaged in it because he had played no more than five miles away from where Kenny Washington starred in high school in Los Angeles. And -hmm. and Keyshawn didn't know that story. So um, that's where we began it. and, um, And out comes the book, The Forgotten First.
0: You know, I've never understood why 1934 was the year that the NFL color line was instituted. I mean, it makes sense. When you think of baseball's color line coming into play at the end of the 19th century and the aftermath of the defeat of Reconstruction and the spreading of Jim Crow. But why 1934
1: for the NFL? Yeah, that's a really good question, Dave. I don't know if there's a really logical answer to it other than, you know, there were only there were a handful of black players from 1920, including Fritz Pollard, who's now in the Hall of Fame. Um, Paul Robeson, famous opera star, played football. Uh, professionally, but only like a a couple of dozen black players from 20 to 33. In 1933, there were just two black players. And then in 34, there was no kind of rhyme or reason other than the Great Depression was ripping the nation. Uh, There was a feeling that if you give uh, with limited jobs, if black players take those jobs, it keeps white players from getting those jobs. I mean, there was that 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 feeling and there was nothing written there was no documentation there was nothing in the bylaws nothing in the constitution but the the nfl owners had a pretty de facto um agreement that they were not going to have black players in the league now a a major driver of that was george preston marshall Mm -hmm. he's not the only one but you know he owned the team in washington he had moved the team um a couple years earlier from boston and he owned the southern market, and Marshall convinced his owner, his fellow owners, that he, he needed to kind of dominate that market. And he, so he had from Washington, that was the southernmost franchise in the National Football League. It seems crazy now because you know the, the, the league is it's spread all over the country, but he owned the southern market, and there's no way that he was going to have a black player on his roster. First of all, he was an avowed segregationist, he, you know, and he was open about it. Um, second of all, he felt that he needed to cater to his clientele, which was almost exclusively white. Uh, and he would not have black players on his team. And he was pretty convincing to his fellow owners who went along with it. They did not fight it. Um, and and then there just were no black players, um, after 33. Um, and it was, you know, it was, it was not questioned. I think Art Rooney and talking to Art Rooney's uh, grandchildren, particularly Jim Rooney, um, Art Rooney felt badly. He probably felt the worst about it, uh, because he, he was conflicted. He, he was a promoter of boxing. Uh, he was, he owned a Negro league team. So he was in favor of giving black athletes opportunities, but, he, but he was a new owner and he just he kind of went along with it. And mm. he later described that as the biggest mistake of his life. Mm. Um, and that's just, you know it's a stain on the Rooney family in a, in a lot of ways and jim jim um and art uh, Rooney the you know they kind of they own that and, and they understand it and they they have to accept it, but it was it was a regret of their grandfather um, back mm. then, so it
0: wasn't fought do you think there's any connection between the Rooney family's role in the color barrier and the current Rooney's proactive stance on fighting for more diversity with the Rooney rule in the NFL's coaching ranks.
1: No question that that has had an impact on that family. And you know, Dan Rooney um, took the ball and ran with that one. And there is absolutely connection, a, a 100% connection between the regret of the family um, including Art Rooney senior, the chief. Um, there's no doubt that that had a lot to do with the team's um, proactive um, actions in in trying to promote diversity, and I say trying to promote diversity around the NFL. And, Dave, I'll, I'll tell you that one of the chapters that emerged from this, just in, in, in kind of researching it and talking to people, is that and we called it the sins of the grandfathers. And there are four families that own teams now, that whose, whose grandfathers owned the teams then and participated in the ban on black players, and all four of those team owners from the Giants to the Bears uh, to the Steelers to the Cardinals, all four they're they're all on the diversity committee, um, and they are all among the most um, active advocates for integrating further integrating the NFL in terms of coaching. Um, and given diverse, um, uh, diverse, you know, creating more diversity in the league, and there is just no question. I don't think they understood it, um, but but they do have this kind of bond, this special bond. And Michael Bidwell of the Cardinals was talking about that. He says, you know, we we, we do have this bond. We get together at meetings, and you know, our, our families own the teams for a long time, and uh, and and they do kind of feel ownership about it. And I don't think it is an accident. Um, that out of that kind of dark time in NFL history comes these four owners who
0: kind of get it and and understand that they have to do their part. Everyone knows Jackie Robinson primarily because Major League Baseball celebrates Jackie Robinson every year, but they don't necessarily know Bill Willis, Marion Motley, Woody Strode, and Jackie's UCLA teammate, Kenny Washington. Why do you think they are so under-discussed? Do you think the NFL could do a better job of celebrating these trailblazers?
1: I wish I knew the answer to that question, and I wish that the league would take more ownership of it. And in talking to people around the league, they they want to do that. They, this is just this is such a no-brainer. I mean, mm-hmm. They're beyond the point of being blamed for it. You know, this, this was 75 years ago. They, they, they themselves, Roger Goodell was not there uh the you know all the owners were they were not there physically so so why not celebrate this now i will say the rams have been open to this um there've been discussions with the rams and they they want to they want to know this story and I, the, the current um executive people with the rams didn't know about it really um but they ordered you know several hundred copies of the book Gave it to all their players and staff, and uh, want to kind of understand it. They will have a Kenny Washington Celebration Day with Woody Strode later in the season. Um, but they, you know, but there just isn't that will to kind of celebrate them in, in a bigger way. In and uh, look, I'm, I'm a writer. You know, Keyshawn is. We're we're, we're trying to sell a book. Uh, yeah. But, but we're also trying to promote an idea, and it's, that idea is you know, more important than selling a book. That idea is kind of celebrating the lives of four men who went through a lot of what Jackie Robinson went through. I mean, Bill Willis and Mary Motley had death threats against them before their first game in Miami in 1946. Miami was part of the Deep South at that time,
2: mm-hmm. and Paul
1: Brown, Paul Brown did not take them to that game because he felt they might have been killed. So, you know, there are a lot of these stories with these four guys. They persevered. They went through it. Um, And and I'll tell you another connecting tissue to this is that Branch Rickey had played football in Ohio. He's from Ohio. And he looked at Bill Willis and Mary Motley competing in the All-American Football Conference in Ohio, playing before 80,000 people sometimes at Cleveland Stadium getting through these games and playing um, and not getting into fights, not, you know, there weren't brawls, there weren't riots. There were, you know, like he, he saw that they could play a game of football, the most violent game that there still is on earth and, and get through it. And it was a year later that he said, okay, the time is right for Jackie Robinson. That watching Motley and Willis absolutely impacted Branch Rickey. And in fact, he wrote a letter to Mary Motley around that time a letter that Molly kept for the rest of his life and Ricky told him he really admired the way he carried himself and competed uh on the field of play in a, in a in an interracial format and um there there are a lot of people from the time that believe that that convinced Ricky that he could do that with Jackie Robinson so that that may not have been an accidental time and you know you mentioned the you know the, the war effort where black soldiers participated in defeating Nazism and, uh, and the Japanese empire. Uh, and that was a big uh, theme then, you know, Hallie Harding was a, a sports writer was a black sports writer in Los Angeles, one of the most prominent columnists in the country. And, and he, he, he pushed that notion with baseball, but he also pushed it with football. He's, he's the hero uh, in a lot of ways of integrating the NFL because he pushed for, the rams to sign at least one black player and they 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 aimed at washington um if they were going to move from cleveland to los angeles to open that market they wanted to play in the at the coliseum which was a publicly owned a publicly funded and and a building built by a lot of african american laborers so he was the one who pushed it uh and got the coliseum commission to broker a deal with the rams that they would sign kenny washington and, and later woody strode and, and thus begins integration in the in the n f l and Paul brown, the founder of the browns, he is the branch Ricky of this story he doesn't get credit for that. he is the guy who willingly signed motley and um and willis he he had coached them um in different spots and he wanted them he want why do you want them he wanted them because they were good, and his whole thing was. I want the best players. Um, if they're black, okay. I'll, I'll still I, I still want to take them. That was, you know, kind of a crazy thought in those days. Not crazy, but was not widely accepted. It was it was a white league. It was a white sport, um, except at historically black colleges and universities, and and other you know th- there were black teams in football, but predominantly in the in the big time football programs they were all white. And Paul Brown fought against that, Um, and and that's a source of pride in the Brown family. Mike Brown, extremely proud of his dad for pushing that
0: idea and for for kind of being a quiet hero in that story. I want to ask you for a thumbnail sketch of each person. Who was Bill Willis?
1: Well, Bill Willis, one of the fastest defensive linemen in football history. Um, Paul Brown thought he was offside uh, in his first tryout because he was getting to the quarterback so quickly, got down on his hands and knees and just made sure he wasn't. And he wasn't, um, he is the forerunner of the four, three middle linebacker because he was so versatile and so quick. He could, he had tremendous range and he was also a tremendous person. He went into recreation after his career was over, became the Ohio recreation commissioner for decades. Um, Prince of a man, um, and has great children who are now older uh, who who tell his story very, very proudly. What about Marion Motley? Yeah, Marion Motley, a, a mountain of a man, grew up in Canton, Ohio, starred at McKinley High School, uh, only lost three football games in his life, and they were all the Paul Brown at uh, Maslon, at uh, you know Washington High School in Maslon. Uh, they, they later connected at the Great Lakes Naval Station. During World War II, Motley played for Paul Brown then. That's when Brown got to know him personally. And he went on to one of the legendary careers as a running back and a blocking fullback. He was tremendous. He was Jim Brown before Jim Brown. Um, and even Jim even Jim Brown says, you know what, Motley's probably a better player because he, he was willing to block. Now the legend, Woody Strode. Dave, Woody Strode had one of the most interesting lives lived in America, period. Played football, ran track, was an Olympic caliber athlete, could Could not go to those 36 games. Um, and he was a great football player, tall, lanky, fast, uh, played end, which is a receiver. Um, and then he went into, he actually won a CFL championship after the Rams cut him because he contended that he was, because he was married to a Hawaiian woman, it was considered an intermarriage. Uh, but he, you won a CFL championship, unbeaten season, celebrated by riding a horse into a hotel lobby up in Canada, and then he went on to become a pro wrestler and then an actor. He acted for almost half a century, um, played in roles including Spartacus, um, and you know he wasn't a, a lead actor in a lot of ways, but he was a tremendous character actor uh, who worked until he died, and the lead character in Toy Story, Woody Pride, played by Tom Hanks, is named
0: after Woody Strode. And Kenny Washington.
1: You know, Kenny was probably the the best all around player of all these guys. He was the first African American All America at UCLA in nineteen thirty nine. He played halfback in the single wing offense, which meant he ran and he passed. He was he was the first quarterback black quarterback in NFL history. He threw passes in his first game in 1946. Exceptional athlete, affable person, kind, warm. Everyone around him loved him, um, but he he could not play professionally, so he played semi-pro ball, got his knees torn up in the 1940s. Yet he was still good enough and popular enough that he was the guy that they put forth as having to join the Rams to, to break that color barrier. He broke the dam and, and, you know, he did it, you know, willingly. He understood the importance of it. Um, he only played for three years, so he didn't have a hall of fame career, but, um, he is one of the great pioneers in, in the NFL and in pro sports.
0: What do you hope NFL fans get out of this book?
1: You know, Dave, par- part of the book is just, you know, I, I want them to know these four guys, um, like we know Jackie Robinson, um, and, and they will. I mean, the the story is told pretty, pretty carefully and, and thoroughly. But there's also something that Keyshawn and I were very mindful of, and that is connecting this story to today. And there are a lot of threads of that story from the 40s that run through today, up to and including the removal of George Preston Marshall's monument outside RFK Stadium last year. Mm -hmm. Um, The the, uh, Roger Goodell acknowledging the history, Roger Goodell talking about his father um, losing his political career because he came out against the Vietnam War and comparing that to the time when he finally, after a lot of clumsy handling of the anthem protests after Colin Kaepernick uh, took a knee, um, he finally said, you know, he took the side of his players when a lot of African-American players demanded that he say black lives matter and he did it alone without consultation. um, It was a, it was a pretty remarkable admission um, and and him talking about why it was so important. And he went against the wishes of president Trump and many fans who were were furious uh, that players would take a knee. Um, So, so, you know, Going back and learning about these guys, yet carrying forward the struggles that they had, um, including Marion Motley wanting to get into coaching, never getting the chance. Lo and behold, there is this problem that is 50 years later still um, an issue. And um, Kenny Washington, you know, the struggles of the black quarterback. He was the first African-American quarterback to throw a pass in NFL history, maybe because he was called a running back. Um, he's not giving credit for it, but hopefully at the end, at the end of this process, he'll, he'll get credit for that.
0: So you've been covering this league since 1985. I just have to ask you, how has the league changed since 1985? What's the number one aspect that you think about when you think about change over the last 35 plus years?
1: Wow. Well, it's become a behemoth. Um, back then we got to know players personally, um, and so it's different. I, I think the size of it, um, and I think the, I think they have taken more cultural responsibility, especially in, in recent years, uh, that you just didn't see quite the same level of when it was, you know, still in its in its growing phase. And uh, you know, in the '80s, it was still growing, uh, you know, into what has now become, you know, this monstrosity. Um, but but I think this the cultural sensitivity is probably. Um, more pronounced now than, than it was back then. And the game itself is different. You know, it's a passing league. Back when I started, it was like, you know, um, it was ground and pound. <laughs> I mean, it was great football, but they were, it was a meat grinder and, you know, uh, and it and it was great football, but it's different now. And it's still, it's still great. It's a great product. It's a fun game to watch. It's just different.
0: Now I got to ask you the question, Bob, I ask everybody who comes on the podcast as you were putting this book together, what kind of music were you listening to either during the production of the book or to wind down after doing some writing? What What was your soundtrack to the writing of this book?
1: Uh, that's a great question, and, and there was. Um, there is a, uh, a movie that came out last year called Jingle Jangle. It's a Christmas movie. Um, and the, the the first song of I don't know I I guess the theme the jingle jangle, and then the one that relaxed me was Eric Clapton, um, down down by the river. Um, you know I, I I still listen to it just about every day. It just takes you. It's just a slow blues song. Um, so so I would say those those are the two soundtracks that that I that I listened to most during the writing of it.
0: Well, Bob Glauber. Thank you so much, you and Keyshawn Johnson giving us this tr- tremendous book, uh, The Forgotten First. And I hope everybody reads it and I really appreciate you coming on the show.
1: Dave, I, I appreciate it too. I got through it, um, despite the fact that um I, I look up to you as oh. you know, one of the great writers. Thank you for, you know, <laughs> taking the time to talk to uh, one of one of your writing underlings. I appreciate <laughs> it. Like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> no way, sir. No, no. <laughs> Listen, that, man, come on. You're come on, class No well, way. but I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, well, for everybody out there listening, uh, we'll be back right after this, after a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast.
0: This is what you got to read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to the slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words. Okay, look. Last Wednesday, the National Women's Soccer League got back to playing ball, but it wasn't business as usual. During the sixth minute of game time, the players on New Jersey, New York, Gotham, and the Washington Spirit just stopped playing. They walked to the center of the pitch and linked arms for a full minute before the match resumed. Instead of confusion or boos, fans rose to their feet and cheered. This act of political protest has occurred or will occur in every NWSL game after a sexual harassment scandal rocked the league in late September. The protests and the raucous support from the stands were acts of catharsis after the most difficult week in the history of the league. A time when revelations about sexual harassment and coercion by one coach spawned a spate of resignations and the cancellation of a weekend slate of games. The protests were also a blaring signal to the powers that be that the players, even though they were back on the field, were keeping up their struggle against abuses that have been discussed behind closed doors with little or no resulting action. Now following a September 30th investigative report from The Athletic, in which players accused since fired North Carolina Courage coach Paul Riley, who has also coached two other teams, including the Portland Thorns, of preying on players the rest of the league is making clear that they will not stop until the sport can truly be a safe space. In this case, two Thorns players, Mana Shim and Sinead Farrelly, went on the record with allegations that they were harassed by Riley in his hotel room and that Farrelly was coerced into sex with him. Riley denies all accusations, but the fallout has been overwhelming. As mentioned, Riley has been canned. The league's commissioner, Lisa Baird, has also stepped down. In a statement last Friday, she said, This week and much of this season has been incredibly traumatic for our players and staff. I take full responsibility for the role I have played. I am so sorry for the pain so many are feeling. Damning email screenshots show that Baird had been contacted by Farrelly about the abuse and did not act. National team star Alex Morgan posted screenshots of emails between Barrett and Farrelly that demonstrated this failure. Morgan also tweeted, the league was informed of these allegations multiple times and refused multiple times to investigate the allegations. The league must accept responsibility for a process that failed to protect its own players from this abuse. The repercussions go way beyond one coach. Games were stopped last weekend on advice from the NWSL Players Association as fan protests were planned for outside and inside stadiums and player strikes seemed likely. The stories of Farrelly and Shim resonated in a way that demonstrates that Riley's behavior is a case of more than just one bad apple. Other, Other resignations and investigations have tumbled forward. The reasons for these resignations have been opaque Steve Baldwin, CEO and managing partner of the NWSL's Washington Spirit, left after allegations quickly emerged that he oversaw, quote, a toxic workplace, end quote. Portland general manager and president of soccer, Gavin Wilkinson, was also placed on administrative leave, pending the results of the outside independent investigation, which is ongoing. More resignations and investigations are expected. The union tweeted the following statement along with the hashtag, no more silence. We have taken the weekend's pause to evaluate. We acknowledge that we will not process the pain of the last several days in one weekend or one week. In the midst of statements that leagues and clubs are quick to release, we have been listening to ourselves and to one another. What makes this particularly agonizing is that there had been other investigations over the years of Riley for this very behavior, yet that was kept hidden when he was hired. North Carolina Courage owner and chairman Steve Malick said he was, quote, given assurances that Riley was, quote, in good standing. He gave no details about who vouched for Riley or why he took this person at their word. As Morgan said, this has been a case of, quote, systemic failure from the league. We've now started to put these things in place by demand of players, not by the league being proactive, she said. Something we ask for the league is for them to start being proactive, not reactive. We're asking for transparency. Morgan is right to refer to this as a systemic failure. It is a systemic failure that would have remained hidden if not for the courage of Farrelly and Shim, as well as the solidarity expressed by every player saying enough is enough. This is a story of predation, but it is also a story of the power of players when they rally around one another. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Boom, we are back on the Edge of Sports podcast. This is my favorite part of the show, the part of the show that's sweeping the nation. We call it Jake's Takes, where I talk to my 13-year-old Jacob James Khalil Zirin, and we find out what his takes are in, t- in terms of NFL picks. Uh, Jake, first and foremost, how did you do last week?
2: last week I went 11 and 5 and so my total record now is 41 and 23. So I've gone 11 and 5 the last 3 weeks.
0: That's badass. I mean, I'm being serious right now. Like p- picking these games is not something that's easy to do. Just ask Colin Cowherd. And so to have uh Jake here Rocking out with these Jake's takes is pretty special. You ready for this week? Yes. All right. The first one is, you know, we're recording this on Thursday evening before the Thursday night game. Even the Thursday night game has me in a pickle. Like, I don't know which team to pick, so I can't even say anything. Um, Rams, Seahawks, who do you got?
2: I'm not really in a pickle. I think this is going to be a Rams win, and I don't think it's going to be particularly close. I think it's going to be at least, like, double digit win by the rams i mean the rams like they did not do well last week against the cardinals but they are the la rams and they will have a bounce back week give me the los angeles rams
0: wow i mean you know what surprises me more than your pick because i think it's a good pick it's the confidence okay jets in atlanta against the falcons who you got
2: now this game is being played in london
0: oh that my bad it's being played in london
2: (laughs) it's okay At 9.30 a.m. That's unreal, but...
0: Obviously, it won't be 9.30 over there, Jake.
2: Yeah, I know, but it's Eastern time. It's 9.30 a.m., which is actually so fun for me because I'm I'm just... I'm not going to specify into that. But I think... Because, I mean, there's no home team here. I mean, the Jets had to travel less, but I am going to take the Atlanta Falcons. Calvin Ridley was ruled out. Really, He was ruled out. So, actually... Let me flip my answer. I'm going with the New York Jets. Wow, the they New just York beat football the, they Jets. Just, they just beat the Titans in overtime. And they're going to beat the Falcons in London.
0: Wow, do I disagree. This is the Kyle Pitts breakout game. Falcons will win that. Patriots can
2: see that easily.
0: Yeah, Patriots going to Houston to play the Texans. Who you got?
2: I mean, I don't know when Tyrod's coming back. Maybe week six, week seven. But I am going to go the Patriots. I think Matt Jones... Has been good. He's been the best rookie quarterback so far, even with a great game from Zach Wilson in that Titans game. But you know, Mac
0: Jones reminds was- me of, uh, like, when I ask you about how a teacher is, and you're like, "Eh, I'm learning."
2: Yeah. It's like there's
0: nothing spectacular there, but you're learning.
2: Yeah. You're
0: moving forward.
2: And I think that the Patriots' defense did really well last week against Tom Brady and the Tony Buccaneers. They should have won if Belichick played that smarter at the end. Yep. Kicking that field goal too far out for Nick Folk, I think his name is. That
0: is his name. Yeah. Okay, that's an easy pick, I think. Uh, Lions playing in Minnesota against the Vikings. Who you got?
2: Now, the Vikings. Sorry, not the Vikings. The Lions are winless so far this season. And... I really don't think they deserve to be winless. They should have won against the Ravens. I think I had them to beat the Ber- the Bears. But the Vikings, you know, they're 1-3. They deserve to be 4-0. But I'm going
0: to go with the Vikings. Okay, Eagles playing in Carolina against the Panthers. I heard the Panthers might have a new player.
2: Oh, they might have a new player. They might have this dude... Defensive Player of the Year for a six-round pick. Are you kidding me? Ugh. I mean, oh, my God, they fleeced the Patriots. I don't know how I didn't talk about that in that Texans matchup. But I'm going to go with the Panthers. They are home for this matchup. Jalen Hurts, I like him a lot. I also like Sam Darnold a lot. I was high on him before the season, and I still am high on him now. The Patriots – sorry, not the Patriots. The Panthers-D is great. Give me the
0: best I actually don't agree with you on that, but that's okay. Oh, All right. On, Saints go. in Wash Saints in Washington. The Taylor the Washington Heineken's.
2: This is my hardest game this week yet, and I still really haven't picked a team. I I don't want to pick a team for this. But I am gonna pick a team and I am gonna say that the New Orleans Saints will Love come that out pick. on top. Both teams are two and two. Both teams have looked kinda shaky and also very good in some games. The Washington defense has not lived up to its potential. They're not using Chase Young, right? Give me the New Orleans Saints.
0: (laughs) Excuse me. Tennessee Titans in Jacksonville. I heard there might be a little turmoil in Jacksonville. You probably haven't heard anything about that. No.
2: But, um, (laughs) I mean, the Titans, I said that they were going to blow out the Jets last week, and then, boom, A.J. Brown and Julio ruled out. So that kind of... Really hurt my pick, and I don't know how Julio Jones and AJ Brown. I don't know what their health is right now. I don't know if they're gonna play, but assuming they play, I'm gonna take the Tennessee Titans here. It's not gonna be close. And I if it's, it's not close,
0: Urban Meyer might be out of a job Monday. That's the rumor. Out if a there's job. a blowout.
2: Jeez, like he's such a terrible, terrible,
0: terrible coach. Oh, <laughs> he's a good college coach, but he's you know that coach. to the NFL is like, come on. Uh, Dolphins in Tampa for the Bucks. This should be an easy one. Give me the Miami...
2: (laughs) 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 Give me the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, man. I mean, they just won last week in a game that they should have lost, but, you know, I'm going to take the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. The Tampa Bay Bay Buccaneers. No two this week, and for a pretty good while. He might be back like week seven, I don't know, but...
0: Give me the. Here's an interesting game. one. The Green Bay Packers going to Cincinnati.
2: Now, the Bengals have started 3 1.
0: Yes. And they're not going to be winning the division by the end of this week. Oh. Lose this game. Love it. And the Browns
2: won't be winning this division either by the end of this week.
0: That's what's going on. Sneaky peaky! <laughs> I can't wait.
2: Uh, give me the Packers. All
0: right. Broncos going to Pittsburgh. Tough place to play. For a Pittsburgh Steelers team that seems in disarray, who do you like?
2: I mean, that Pittsburgh defense has actually looked good. But, man, that offense might be the worst in the NFL. Big Ben sucks. Deontay Johnson has looked really good. But Big Ben sucks. Wow. But, I mean, it really depends on if Teddy Bridgewater or Drew Locke plays. If Teddy Bridgewater plays, give me the Broncos. If Drew Locke plays, that might be a different story. But I am going to go the Broncos, assuming Teddy Bridgewater plays.
0: You know, shame on you because you are the one who said they should start Drew Locke instead of Teddy Bridgewater that at the start just of the year. Because
2: of the potential, and I've heard, I heard, there, I heard good things in camp. I just thought that Drew, Blo- Drew Locke Drew had a lot of potential. And I still do.
0: Drew Lock, rocket arm. Yeah, hmm. looks more like a like a sputtering science project rocket than an actual rocket. Myself. That wasn't very funny. Chicago Bears in Vegas. Who do you like?
2: This is one of my actually, no, I'm not gonna say this is an upset. You know why? I, I, I actually picked the Bears before um like I was looking it over. I was like, I'm gonna pick the Bears in an upset game. You know, Khalil Mack, he's gonna do well. But now that I'm looking at it, the Raiders are playing at home. And when the Raiders are playing at home, they are going to win. Give me the LA sorry, not LA, Las Vegas. L V. LV, Las Vegas Raiders.
0: Browns in Los Angeles to play the Chargers.
2: Give me the Los Angeles Chargers. I love Justin Herbert, man. I love him and Baker. You know he has a partially torn labrum. He does. Yeah, he does, and he's still gonna play. Mm. I mean, it's his left arm, which isn't his throwing arm, and he said that was an excuse for that that trash Odell throw that should have been like a 30-yard touchdown. But. I'm gonna go the LA Chargers at a big upset.
0: Giants playing in Dallas.
2: Um Daniel Jones has looked good. Like not like great, but he's looked pretty good. Like he's not like a bottom five quarterback anymore. Alright,
0: are you saying you're tending towards the upset?
2: <laughs> no. Oh. <laughs> you're the Cowboys. I okay. Mean, I like Dak. I like Z Z just had his best game in two years. Uh. Um The defense has looked actually not as bad. Micah Parsons is a D-Roy candidate. Give me the Cowboys. And how, sorry, how could I not mention Trayvon Diggs? I mean, five picks in four games. Amazing.
0: Now I have some really tough ones. Like, three tough ones in a row for you. All right. 49ers, Cardinals.
2: Cardinals. I mean, I don't need to say much. I mean, I love Trey Lance. I like him. I think he, I mean, he's good. I don't love him yet. I do. I okay. because I like the talent. The talent is there, and the arm is definitely there. I like him. I like their team, but you can't. They're not going to beat the undefeated 4-0 MVP leading Kyler Murray and the Arizona Cardinals.
0: I agree with you. Uh This one I think we're going to disagree. Buffalo Bills going to Kansas City to play the Chiefs.
2: That Kansas City defense has looked atrocious. mm They've looked really bad. You know why? Because they've been giving too many big contracts out. I mean, that offense, though, is really good. And Josh Allen has still looked really good besides, like, having a couple a couple shaky games. But he still looked like, you know, an elite quarterback. Stephon Diggs, Stephon Diggs. That offense is always going to be great. And that defense has looked really good this so far this season. Give me the Buffalo Bills.
0: My, my, my. One more game for you, buddy. One more game for you, pal. Monday night, Carson Wentz and the formerly Baltimore, currently Indianapolis Colts, travel to Baltimore to play your Baltimore Ravens. Who do you like?
2: I would say that this is like a really close one if it wasn't Indianapolis. I think it's still going to be a close game. I do too. I think it'll be a close game. But I am gonna go, the Baltimore Ravens.
0: Colts have a great D. Colts I think
2: have a really good D. I mean they they <clears throat> kind of underperformed so far this season. Carson Wentz has looked better, you can say. I mean he's, he's looked pretty good when healthy, and he's not healthy right now.
0: Is but is there future Hall of Fame offensive lineman Quentin Nelson playing this week? Do you no, know? He's not. He's on IR. I never, Just, I, I'm never happy about anybody having injuries, so I'm I mean, not going to cheer that. It's even as a Ravens fan, I shall not cheer that.
2: It's brutal. I actually feel... I mean, he's the best offensive lineman in football.
0: Maybe in the last 20 years, honestly, Jeez. since the days yeah, okay. of Anthony Munoz. Okay, okay. That's a stretch. He's Why? He's been three years. Yeah, three all pro. I don't care. Get best it. I've seen since Munoz. Uh, you don't even know who Anthony Munoz is.
2: Ouch. But I mean, Jonathan Ogden, come on now. We're just, I mean, these teams alone, Jonathan Ogden. Come yeah, on. my bad. But give me the
0: roads All right. Well, there's one last thing we got to do, Jake, for Jake's Takes. You haven't gotten wrong yet. You haven't gotten wrong yet. For people who don't know the rules, let me explain. This is a quick segment we call Bet the House. Where Jacob says one game that he is absolutely five million percent confident he is going to be correct, and just for the record, he has not gotten wrong a bet the house game yet. And one of the rules <laughs> of bet the house is that you can't pick the same team to lose a second time. Dinny, I'm gonna be risky.
2: Go and for you it. You
0: know
2: what? I'm gonna pick the game that is tonight in what? thirty minutes. <laughs> Rams are beating the Seahawks, and that is my bet the house pick.
0: Oh, my goodness, thank you, son. They're swinging and clanging. (laughs) All right, well, that's all the time we have this week for Jake's Stakes. Uh, First, Jake's
2: Iron, say goodbye. Thank you for having me once again.
0: Oh, you're very welcome, and for everybody out there listening. Uh, Thank you for everybody uh, listening to the show. And we'll be back right after this after a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thank you so much to my guest, Bob Glauber. Thank you so much to the producer of this podcast, David Tigabu. If you like the pod and I feel like I'm hearing more from you than I ever have before, it's kind of awesome. Uh, Please, please do more than email me at edgesports at gmail.com or hit me up at edgesports on the old Twitter machine. Do more than that. Please give us a nice five-star rating. Please write up a little review. Please pass the word along. We are a word-of-mouth podcast. We do not have ESPN uh, blowing us up. We got to blow ourselves up. And we might blow up, but we won't go pop, as De La Soul said. So for everybody out there listening, please mask up, stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.